Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Hello, hello everybody, and welcome back to another episode, of course, Changing the Climate, always talking about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Very excited to welcome my guest, Beth Hartman. Thanks, Ethan. It's great to be here. I am very excited to talk to you about a bunch of different stuff today. But before we get into all the little details, we, of course, always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, thanks. Um, So I've been working on energy and climate for about 10 years, a little over 10 years now. Um, And I was born and raised in Boulder. I've always had a big interest in the outdoors and, you know, our beautiful planet. And so it kind of led me into this line of work. And it's, I think, one of the most important areas of focus for humanity at this time. Um, I think you and I both agree beyond a doubt. But um, do you think it's like you're, you know, Boulder so like connected to nature, like we can go off into the mountains within like a five minute walk from where we live. Where do you think like this deep, like interest in protecting the climate or just the environment really originate? Do you have like a story you can think of or like a moment in your life when you're like, oh, I love nature? <laughs> um. I can't really point to a specific moment. Maybe there was, I did Outward Bound in college. So I spent a lot of time um, in that program hiking around in the Sierras in California. And it's also a very beautiful mountain range. Um, And that was very eye-opening. But I think more for me, it's not so much people ask, you know, why are you interested or passionate about climate change? And it's not really that I'm passionate about it so much as like it's the same way that you would be passionate about a life jacket if you were on a boat that was sinking you would be like (laughs) I really need a life jacket like I'm pretty interested in that life jacket so um it's more of a a sense of existential dread rather than passion well put um where did your focus on clean energy then come from because there's a lot of different solutions to climate change obviously that's probably the biggest one and that that one that gets the most like media coverage i'd say as well i'm curious why you have chosen to kind of focus on that with your work yeah um so energy as we say at rmi is is about 70 percent of the problem when you look at global emissions obviously agriculture and other areas are important as well Um, But 70% is a big number. And so if it's 70% of the problem, it could also be 70% of the solution. So Mm. I kind of really look at it as like the biggest lever we can pull. Um, And there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful about energy because we're making a lot of progress in different sectors, especially in electricity. And if we can clean up the electricity sector and then get everything to be powered with clean electrons, that will make a huge dent in the emissions problem. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I was led to energy just by sort of thinking through the size of the problem and the size of the solution, the potential. Yeah. So when you say like agriculture is like a separate part, isn't like there like a lot of energy used in agriculture? Like how do, how do those like percentages like stack up? There is. Um, I'm, I'm just not an expert in agriculture. So I would feel- uncomfortable speaking to that. Um, But I think also to some degree, like I I got into energy because it's a huge part of the problem and solution, but also I was lucky enough to work for an energy startup after I did a fellowship at the law school called Simple Energy when after they went through Techstars. And so I just learned more and more about energy as I was working with that company. And it kind of was just the natural path for me. So a lot of 
a lot of the career path for people, you know, looking back, you think, oh, it's so intentional, but actually like a lot of it is kind of luck or chance. Yeah, I definitely agree with that now. Can you tell people what Techstars are? Because I know what that is because I worked with Boomtown and they were like affiliated with them. But what's a what's an incubator and what's Techstars? And we're going to talk about a lot of startup stuff today. Yeah, uh, Techstars is an accelerator. Um, there's some differences between incubators and accelerators, which we can okay. get into people sort of debate what an actual accelerator versus incubator program is. Hmm. Um, but Techstars is a fairly classic accelerator in that it's like a specific amount of time. It's about three month long program and they run companies through a specific set of curriculum um, and beginning with sort of like mentor madness, you meet all your mentors and then you work on your product market fit and you do all these specific things until you get to the demo day. And then hopefully you raise money from investors and grow your company. Um, so Techstars is one of the biggest accelerator programs in the world. They have, I don't know how many programs uh, all over the world they have thousands and thousands of companies that they've wow. helped start. And um, they also have uh, like affiliated investor funds. So it helps for the, for the startups to get a smoother path to fundraising. And they mm -hmm. have a lot of different focus areas. They do programs in energy and sustainability as well as in FinTech and you know, food, you name it. They have a ton of different types of programs all over the world. And did you mention, did you say you went to law school? Was it at CU? I did a fellowship at the law school. Yeah, um, it was a year long fellowship um, helping in the entrepreneurship center there at the CU law school. So I ran a cool. student business plan competition um, and wrote a lot of reports on innovation and um, energy and telecom and different topics. It was kind of an exploratory fellowship for me. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but it turns out I was wrong. So <laughs> I did not go to law school in the end. No worries. Oh, it's a bunch of time anyways. We needed you out here in the field. Um, <laughs> That's right. So you said you, you worked with Techstars and you got involved with a company called Simple Energy, was it? Is that what it was called? Yeah, so Simple what do they do? Simple Energy um, is a, a behavioral platform to help encourage people to save energy, more efficiency and more what they call demand response, which is like turning down your air conditioning if it's a really hot day. Um, cool. And they went through Techstars, I think it was in 2010-ish. And mm -hmm. so then I joined them right after they graduated from Techstars when they had, you know, the two co-founders and a couple of engineers and I was the everything else. So I did a lot of marketing awesome. and office, whatever, just sales, whatever needed to be done. It was very exciting. It was also pretty uh, intense, you know, especially at an early stage of a startup, it gets, it's, it's just a little chaotic and very stressful, Absolutely. but very exciting. Um, so I didn't manage to hang on for too long because <laughs> the pace, it, it takes a certain personality. So from there, I went into, um, more energy focused, uh, nonprofits and research groups. Are you, you like specifically interested in like startup companies or did you just want to be involved with a new company? Cause they were the ones kind of doing the stuff that you were interested in. Cause I know the whole clean energy thing is not exactly old school at this point. Yeah, I specifically, was interested in startups because um, of the importance of innovation and in, in driving change mm. in the energy industry. I think there's this sort of uh, ridiculous debate sometimes about like, is it innovation or is it deployment of existing solutions? And of course the answer is always, it is both. So mm. you don't get existing solutions unless you innovate, you know, it took 40 years for us to get to where we are with solar panels. Um, and now they're one of the cheapest forms of energy on earth. Like 
hooray, we made it, but it took a long time. So you need to have innovation and deployment of existing solutions. Um, and there's no need to like bicker over which is better because obviously we need both. So for a long time, I focused on more of the earlier stage innovation side of things. Um, and now I'm personally getting more interested in the later stage deployment and scaling of solutions side of things mm -hmm. with tools like finance and other ways that you can accelerate that because uh, of the time sensitive nature of the climate crisis. We just, we have to deploy existing solutions as quickly as possible at scale. Beyond a doubt. So speaking of bickering over what's going to be the right solution, mm -hmm. I, I asked this question a lot when I first started the podcast and of all, of all people, I'd really love to ask you about this. Um, kind of the, the distinction between the role of like governments individuals or corporations like what what role do you think startup companies and large corporations have to play in this fight we call against the deteriorating climate like versus like individual action or governments because i'm i'm of the opinion that we have a robust economic system that exists in place that incentivizes people to do business with the best companies in the world and i think the best companies are motivated by enlightened self-interest and trying to make the world a better place and create the best product so i think if we can just sneak in there switch all the businesses to be environmentally <laughs> friendly we can we can hit this time this time constraint that you and i are concerned about but i wanted to hear what you think yeah, I definitely agree with you that businesses are a really important uh, lever to pull and we do exist within a capitalist framework at this time. And so like we need to work within that framework to change things as fast as possible because we simply don't have time to change the entire global economy. Like that's gonna, that's not a reasonable idea. Um, so at RMI, we do really focus on market-based solutions. We work with a lot of corporations and cool. we are very interested in helping them discover the pathway to decarbonize their industries more quickly because um, one of our former colleagues, Paul Bodner, who now works at BlackRock, likes to say the real economy is not a side event. It is in fact central to the decarbonization process. And we need to make sure that businesses are elevated to the same level of importance as governments. Governments, of course, have a huge role to play. Policy matters, it's very important, but um, you know, we have COP26 coming in Glasgow in November. We've done COPs 1 through 25 with this focus on national policy, and it's clearly not working. Like, it's not, emissions are still rising. So we need both. We need governments to have policy and nationally determined contributions to reduce their emissions. Um, like, everybody is increasing their level of ambition. Goals are always good, but to achieve your goals, you then actually have to go to the sector of the economy that is producing emissions and be like, okay, um, electricity, buildings, mobility, industry, like, here's what you need to do to help us achieve our goals. And if you get those industries aligned and moving, and all of them agree, and like their customers agree, the finance people agree, then you can hopefully push them more quickly down the decarbonization pathway. Where do you think we're at right now, July, 2021, as far as like this, this push? <clears throat> we need more muscle. We need more muscle. I think it's an interesting moment. And, you know, people are always talking about tipping points and in both the natural system and in the social system, I feel like we're reaching a lot of tipping points right now. Terrifying. Emissions are still rising, but there's a lot of momentum behind different ways to change that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can see horrible, 
horrible environmental catastrophes are happening now faster everywhere. Nobody expected people to be dying of heat stroke in Canada or people to be drowning in floods in Germany, but they are. And so that's scary. And these tipping points are being reached and hopefully that's creating awareness, like further awareness of the true urgent nature of this crisis and why we need to treat it like the emergency that it is. And hopefully with the combination of like social movements, policy changes, companies moving more quickly, um, financial changes, you know, people are just not going to be giving money to companies that don't have a clear path to decarbonize. Um, so there's a great quote from Hemingway in The Sun Also Rises, where they ask one of the characters, how did you go bankrupt? And he says, gradually and then suddenly. And that's often how change happens is that you think it's really slow for a really long time. And then boom, like there's this sudden exponential curve and people are not very good at intuitively understanding exponential growth curves, which is why a lot of people, you know, fail to anticipate the effects of a, of a pandemic, for example. Totally. Um, but when you do see change happen quickly, it's always kind of surprising in the moment. And then you look back and it feels inevitable. You know, we didn't all used to carry these iPhones around like a mm -hmm. decade ago and now everyone does. So yep. change can happen quickly and it must. So I'm hopeful that we can push it faster. Yeah. And you're right. Cause we're gonna, cause I'm going to help you. And I know lots of people who have been on this podcast and people who I talk to in the streets who are very keen because mm -hmm. uh, everyone wants a life jacket when we're swimming in the middle of the ocean. Yes. But um, before we talk about RMI for the rest of the podcast, I just wanted to ask you about your experience leading the incubate energy network. Like what was the deal with that? Yeah, that was such a great project. And I was really like, again, lucky and honored that that got to be part of my, my career path. Um, so the network was led by EPRI, the Electric Power Research Institute, which is where I worked before joining RMI. And it was uh, a partnership with EPRI and then the National Renewable Energy Lab and the Department of Energy, which provided some funding to build this network. And the idea was to just take existing incubator and accelerator programs in the US that are focused on clean energy and help them work together more effectively and collaborate and coordinate so that the startups you know, would be able to benefit from maybe going through one or more programs if they have a different focus on different stages or different technologies, um, sharing resources, just tips. Like they, they're all very um, collaborative groups of people because they are working on what they consider to be the biggest crisis facing humanity. So they want to help and share. And so unlike um, sometimes other accelerator incubator programs who are pretty competitive in terms of their deal flow and sharing their investor networks and all of that. The clean energy focused incubators and accelerators in this network, are very, very interested in helping each other and helping their startups succeed more quickly. And uh, of course, like it's great if you get to be part of an amazing deal and you end up owning something that becomes the next big Tesla. But the most important thing is that we scale these solutions as quickly as possible. So it was really, it was wonderful working with all of these collaborative incubator and accelerator programs around the country and helping to build the network so that they could work together more effectively. And so EPRI is continuing to run that network now. Um, so it still exists, which is great to see, even though it's no longer being funded by the Department of Energy um, because they just see so much value in supporting the, the innovation in the energy industry and bringing those startups to their utility members to help them um, drive towards decarbonization more quickly. 
Beth, I'm getting the feeling that you're you're not in this to uh, become overtly wealthy, um, <laughs> benefiting off of clean energy. I think you seem like you actually care about the issue. It's the strangest thing. It's true. If I if I wanted to get wealthy, maybe I would, you know, do better learning more about finance and become a VC or something. But I'm really just mm-hmm. in it for um, humanity. Yeah, and you're working for a nonprofit organization called the Rocky Mountain Institute. Is that right? That's correct. We actually just rebranded. So now we're officially just RMI, but Rocky Mountain okay. Institute, formerly known as, yeah. Cool. So what is what is RMI and what do you guys do? So RMI is a global nonprofit. We've been around for almost 40 years, originally founded in um, Basalt up near Aspen by a gentleman named Amory Lovins, who has written many books on the topic of clean energy, like natural capitalism and reinventing fire and other other things. So he's sort of a guru in the space. A lot of people know his name. Um, and we are now, let's see, I think we're over 400 people and we have offices in um, not just Basalt, but Boulder, DC, New York, Oakland, Beijing, Delhi, and we're opening one soon in um, Africa. So we take a really global approach to the energy system and a really systemic approach to the energy system, which is something that I appreciate. Um, I really enjoyed working with EPRI as well, but they focus only on utilities, which is a big part of the energy system, but there's also you know, oil and gas and a bunch of other parts of the energy system that we need to work with. So at RMI, we say we do two things in five places. And the two things are first decarbonize the big sectors of the economy. So electricity, mobility, buildings, and industry. And then second, accelerate decarbonization of those sectors through market catalysts that drive change more quickly. This is things like finance, data, technology, education, um, and policy. But we aren't primarily focused on policy, unlike a lot of other nonprofits in the energy and climate space. Right. And then the five places we do this work is um, US, China, India are the first three, because if you add those up, that's 50% of global emissions. Wow. Uh, cities, because they're big centers of emissions and innovation and people. And if you can move cities more quickly, that makes a big difference. And then emerging economies, because that is where the future emissions will come from. And if we can help them leapfrog to clean energy the same way that they did with cell phones and skipping landlines, we can avoid a huge amount of emissions and provide them with better, like cleaner, cheaper, more resilient, robust energy systems that will make all of their lives better. Very cool. So you are the manager of the office of the CEO at RMI, right? So what, right. what does your workflow kind of look like on a day-to-day basis? Whew. Well, it varies from moment to moment, um, but it's basically sort of a chief of staff role where I assist the CEO in anything um, that he needs. And our CEO now is, it's no longer Amory, who is our um, sort of chairman emeritus. Uh, Our CEO is named Jules Kortenhurst. He's uh, Dutch and he's been CEO for about eight years and has really grown the company a lot over those eight years. It's almost 20% average growth every year. So we've been growing a lot under his leadership. So I do a lot of helping to prepare him for giving talks or going with him to events when we are allowed to travel, um, Mm -hmm. writing op-eds for him, articles for him, preparing decks, preparing talking points, going to meetings, 
like whatever is needed. Um, sometimes bigger projects arise. Like for example, we just recently, um, after Green Tech Media was shut down, I don't know if you remember hearing about that. There is a media company called Green Tech Media that was kind of one of the best sources of energy news in the industry. Mm. And they were owned by a consultancy called Wood, uh, Wood McKenzie that serves a lot of oil and gas companies. So we're not sure why, but they decided to shut down Green Tech Media and everybody was sad because it was a great source of news that we all follow. And so we decided we would hire all those journalists and form a new media platform that's called Canary mm -hmm. Media. So we did that um, a few months ago. It was kind of a Oh, awesome. Mad Dash, a big, exciting project. So you just never know um, what will happen. And that's part of why the job is so exciting. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so you said the company's grown by like 20% per year. Is it is it just based on donations or how does the, the nonprofit organization get funding? We do get um, most of our funding from philanthropic donations. Awesome. Um, a lot of larger donors. Um, we've just received some funding from the Bezos Earth Fund. We get a lot of, um, you know, other big groups like Bloomberg. Um, and then about 20% of our revenue is from consulting or fee-for-service work where we will work with a specific company or, um, you know, organization group where they want us to help them figure out something specific. You know, how should we, how, a utility might ask us for help designing their integrated resource plan or a state might ask us for help thinking through how they can decarbonize more quickly or change some of their policies. So it's about 20% fee-per-service and 80% philanthropic. Very cool. Can you tell me about some of the projects that you guys are working on that you're like really excited about or feel optimistic could have a huge impact? <laughs> There's, uh, yes, I would be happy to. There are so many. Um, one that I'm really excited about is called the Mission Possible Partnership. And this is something that the Bezos Earth Fund is supporting. And this is an effort to help industries decarbonize more quickly. Industry is one of the harder things to decarbonize, um, sometimes called the hard to abate sectors because we don't yet know exactly which solutions will, will work at scale in these industries. Things like shipping, aviation, steel, cement. We know generally like green hydrogen is going to be involved in some way, but it's not exactly clear where will that be produced with like offshore wind, what regions, electrolyzers, like what is the cost curve? It's just, it's less clear than something like electricity where wind and solar and batteries are in many cases, the cheapest solutions and we know how to build them and we know how to scale it. So we know what to do. <clears throat> so in industry, what we're trying to do is similar to an effort that we did with the shipping industry called the Poseidon principles, where we got some of the largest companies in the shipping industry like Maersk to agree with their suppliers and financers, manufacturers, customers, that they would set specific decarbonization goals for different years in the future and then work towards achieving those. So this like alignment across the entire value chain in the industry is really important and effective because then it means that the banks aren't going to be lending to people who are building ships that are not on the path to decarbonization, for example. So we're trying to replicate that sort of industry alignment process across um, other sectors of the of industry, aviation, steel, cement, and see if we can kind of get them all to agree on their pathway and move forward more quickly. 
Um, yeah. Happy to talk about other programs too, but that was just the first one that came to mind. Yeah. Well, those are like some of the hardest industries to decarbonize, specifically shipping and aviation. Shipping is, is what? The, the, the boats are powered by oil, um, I think? Diesel, yeah. Diesel, that's what it was. And then it's great. really difficult to, to, to fix that. Yeah. In, in shorter, you know, for short, short uh, trips on boats, you can electrify ships. So a lot of ferries in, in Europe and I think some to some degree in the Northwest of the US are starting to electrify. Similar for aviation, you can have small planes that are electric, but um, for, for big ships that go across the Pacific Ocean, you, go, you need something else. And so the hypothesis is probably ammonia derived from uh, green hydrogen, but I am not mm -hmm. an expert. I'm not a chemist. Sure. I am not a shipping person. That is just my high level understanding. Yeah. Well, I have an interesting question I want to ask you as someone who's very obviously in this industry, in this whatever space for uh, feeling a necessity. I mean, you have you have children, right? I do. I have two boys, eight and five years old. Yeah. And you, you're, you're concerned about the climate, just like my generation and a lot of people I talk to, but you're deeply in the, the for-profit space and you're working with businesses on a daily basis. And a lot of these people are just about making money, making money all the time. So how do you kind of rectify this? I don't even know this, this, this kind of distinction in values. I don't know where you, where you're talking to people who are CEOs of companies, they're trying to make 10, 15 year plans where they can make the company grow and grow and grow. But like a lot of the issues has come from this obsessive, um, you know, obsession over economic growth. So how do you kind of rectify that with your desire to like have a, a, a you know, sustainable or regenerative economy or world? Yeah. Um, so a lot of our analysis focuses on showing them that it is actually more economically beneficial for them to decarbonize than to not decarbonize. Mm -hmm. um, there's a report called Making Mission Possible that shows that, you know, the entire global economy can be decarbonized by 2050 at, at a cost of like 1.5% of global GDP per year, which is a large number, like it's trillions of dollars, but mm -hmm. you have to ask the question compared to what, which... <laughs> If we fail to take action, you know, that is vastly, vastly more expensive and dangerous than taking action. It's kind of like if you um, had to fix your roof and you decided that you were going to save money by not doing that and then your entire house just got flooded. So that's, that's not a good, you know, investment. <laughs> like that's not a smart decision. So a lot of our work focuses on speaking at the CEO and board level and helping them to understand the risks, the physical risks of climate change to their business like supply chain disruption, workers dying in the heat. These are real risks to your business and the transitional risks of failing to move more quickly towards a decarbonized economy, especially when their competitors are starting to move. And if they don't, they're going to be left behind and, um, you know, go bankrupt if they don't eventually make the shift. So our, our work tries to sort of help them understand that in the end, a sustainable economy is in fact a profitable economy and they need to get on board. Fair enough. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot too much, like asking you to condemn your billionaire friends, but um, <laughs> we're always um, happy to take money from billionaires, you know, redistribution of wealth. It's good. Yeah. 
I think it's, it totally depends on the person. I think a lot of people have become very successful by always catering to their customers and trying to create the best product and make the world a better place. And then I think there's some people who are totally focused on wealth, wealth creation. And that's, it's just a game of increasing their numbers because it's fun. But um, that's, that's a conversation for another day, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to ask you if you think it's actually realistic for us to have a 50% reduction in greenhouse gases uh, in 10 years. So it is technically and economically possible, right? Whether it's realistic or feasible, a lot comes down to humans and the choices that we make and um, how quickly people begin to understand the urgency of the crisis and move, especially leaders like presidents, CEOs, people who are in charge of banks. If they start to move, everything moves more quickly. And that's not to say that it doesn't matter what you and I do, you know, every, every action matters. Everyone can mm-hmm. do something. Not everyone can do everything. So anything helps. Like it's great if you decide to install a heat pump instead of powering your home with gas. It's great if you decide to put solar panels or buy an electric vehicle or eat less meat or fly less frequently. All of these things matter. And in particular, if you are a member of a wealthier demographic, it matters more because you may have a bigger house or drive a bigger car or fly in planes more frequently. So the choices that we make matter and it can help inspire your friends to make better choices. If you, you know, show them your model three Tesla and how cool it is and let them drive it. And it's super fast and fun and yeah. it's cheaper in the end actually than a gas car. So everything matters. I think I, I have something that I like to refer to as the climate change metronome where it's like hope, despair, hope, despair. So I feel you. Oh, some man. days I'm like, Oh, <laughs> the electric F-150, like that's a big deal. That's a whole new group of people who's going to buy an electric vehicle. And then some days I'm like, Oh wow. Yeah. Flooding in Germany. That's really bad. Like mm-hmm. that's really bad. Um, but all you can do is keep going because like what other choices there? You're not just going to give up. I mean, what? That's ridiculous. Put on your life jacket, like start swimming. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, any ideas about how to create like some backstops so we can kind of guarantee at least some sort of reduction, like something. Yeah. It would, it would be great to be like, if we do this, we can definitely do that. And then this becomes law. Or is there something we can do to create some kind of guarantee to give people that vested hope that's not going away. Mm-hmm. I think if you, if you think about it, like from a systems level perspective, as we like to do at RMI, first you have to decarbonize the electricity system, right? And we're actually making a lot of progress on that. The electricity system is the one in industry or sector of the economy that has actually reduced its emissions significantly over the last decade. And so if we, if we continue that and accelerate the pace, like no new coal, no new gas, retire the coal and gas that exists more quickly, build a ton of clean energy, we can get to 80% clean electrons by 2030, like pretty easily. A lot of utilities have committed to that. They know that that's possible. So then mm-hmm. if you can electrify everything else as much as possible, cars, homes, then that, that takes a huge chunk out of the emissions as, we are, as I discussed at the beginning. So um, I think if we can just kind of keep building momentum and cleaning up the electricity system, getting more electric vehicles out there, 
not just cars, like bikes and scooters are cool too. Um, mm -hmm. Public transportation matters, zoning matters, land use matters. If we can try to get more cities to commit to banning gas in new buildings, which a lot of them are starting to do, and then working towards taking gas out of existing buildings, that's a big deal. Um, so there's just, there's so many things that we can do. And I believed that we will accelerate progress in the next 10 years because more and more people will become aware of the solutions and more and more people will become aware of the urgency and the need for doing so. Yeah. And you're going to keep helping us out. We got, we got you, we got 350 Colorado citizens climate, but we got all sorts of people working on this stuff. That's what I'm trying to highlight with this show. But, um, Oh, can you explain kind of why electrification brings down emissions so much? Like, how is it so different from just like having a gas powered car? Because don't they both require like energy either way? They do both require energy, um, but electric cars are incredibly more efficient than gas cars. Gas cars use, you know, something like 30% of the fuel actually goes to moving the vehicle and the rest of it is just wasted heat. Um, oh, wow. So it's much more efficient. Electric motors in general are more efficient than engines that burn fuel. And then second of all, we know how to make electrons that are zero carbon. And we don't really know how to make gas that is zero carbon. Like, hmm. yes, carbon capture and sequestration is an important thing that we're going to need uh, yeah. to remove the existing emissions in the atmosphere and abate future emissions that can't be quickly decarbonized. But it's uh that's where the like the gap in the existing technology and what is needed is largest and it's just not um economic like it's just not cheaper to put carbon capture on a coal or gas plant than it is to just build clean energy so we know how to create clean electrons that are cheaper than dirty electrons and we know that powering things with electrons is more efficient so that's why electrification uh, clean efficient electrification is a big force for decarbonizing the entire economy. So, and, and when you say clean, you're talking about hydro, solar, geothermal, like all that stuff. What makes that stuff clean and mm -hmm. like gas and oil, like dirty, just like CO2 emissions? Is there not any CO2 emissions at all in the clean energy? Um, that's right. Anything that can produce energy without producing emissions is clean and not just CO2, but also methane. So mm -hmm. that's a big problem with gas because methane is a much stronger greenhouse gas than carbon over shorter timescales. So if we can um, stop methane, that, that would be a really big deal. Of course, you know, there are, there are some emissions involved in producing solar panels and wind turbines and all of these, you know, pieces of infrastructure that we need to create clean energy. But compared to the amount of emissions coming from a fossil fuel system, it is negligible. And as we increasingly decarbonize the entire energy system, you can then produce future infrastructure with fewer and fewer emissions. So it's like a virtuous cycle. Gotcha. What about like these rare earth materials that we have to use for like solar panels and stuff? You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm going door to door talking about climate change. So I hear, I hear, I hear everything across the board about, oh my God, that's so amazing. It's like, you're wasting your money, man. Like climate change isn't real. And to, to like, you know, it's not practical because people are, you know, the developing countries are just going to burn coal and then they're not going to build solar plants, solar panels, because you have to dig those out of mines. And then the people in the mines are, are like, 
getting slave wages or whatever. So I just wanted to ask a little bit about like the, the details of like clean energy. I guess solar is like the best example. It has like rare earth materials that we need to build them. And do those wear out? I hear people have to replace their solar panels and stuff. Mm. Yeah. So solar panels last for decades. I think NREL, the original solar panel that they built to test is like still going and it's 50 years old. So sweet. they last for a really long time. Um, so do wind turbines <clears throat> and batteries. The rare earth question is certainly something that needs to be addressed, but increasingly new battery chemistries are, are emerging that are able to be produced without rare earths or with much lower levels of them. Very and cool. when you look at, you know, kind of just comparing the mining operations that are needed to get rare earths versus the mining that is needed to get oil and gas and coal out of the ground, um, there's just no comparison. Like the impacts of fossil fuels kill something on the order of 9 million people a year directly just from air pollution. So when you compare that to the smaller impact of mining for rare earth metals it is really uh, negligible. And we're also yeah. working on ways to make mines operate more you know, cleanly. We have a program called, I think it was called like uh, Sunshine for Mines maybe, where we are trying to increasingly get mines to be powered with solar and batteries so that they're more clean and efficient. And of course, working with labor groups to try to make sure that the miners who are working in those mines are treated well and fairly. Um, so equity in the, in the clean energy transition is another huge topic that we can dig into if you want. Yeah. Well, you said we, does that mean RMI is working on this? Uh, we, yes. RMI has a program called Sunshine for Mines and we do a lot of work with big uh, mining companies, Rio Tinto, et cetera, to help them try to be better. Man, you guys are doing everything, huh? <laughs> it sometimes does feel like that. And, you know, we are only 400 people, but I think that the uh, output per capita is pretty high at RMI. I'm always amazed when my colleagues tell me what they're working on. I'm just like, wow, you're, you're smarter than me. Everybody at RMI is smarter than me. It's incredible. Isn't it great to be surrounded by people who are smarter than you all the time? It's That's so how great. I feel on this yeah, podcast every week. Yeah, it's like being with people who are faster than you. You just got to keep up and like you get better. Yeah, cool. Well, rather than digging into like details of mining, I just wanted to ask you um, if you think we'll ever reach a fully carbon-free economy with, with zero emissions, because it seems like a, the stuff that we talked about shipping and aviation at this point, it seems impossible. But you know what? Like, as you said, like this cell, cell phone seemed impossible a hundred years ago. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, one way or another, we will. <laughs> We're hoping that we do it in a way that is good for humans and like somewhat of a smooth transition. Um, but physics is like not negotiable. You know, mm -hmm. you have to think about the planetary systems and their boundaries that in which we live. So one way or another, we're going to get to a zero carbon economy because that's just what is required. Hmm. Um, you know, I think it's Christiana Figueres and probably others have said something similar. It's, it's no longer enough to do what we can. We have to do what is required. Like it's just, you just have to. Yeah. So one space that I'm very interested in that you hinted at or you mentioned directly before is, is carbon sequestration because mm -hmm. I think I see it as like 
we got a big dirty dirty plate it's covered with stuff um we keep adding more stuff to it but that doesn't change the fact that there's 80 years or more 100 whatever years of of dirt that we need to clean up and i think that we keep talking about timelines and how it's running out of time so uh, you know we can kind of bring the timeline down by by pulling carbon out of the area you hinted that the technology is not quite there yet but of course you've been involved with startup companies we've talked about how um things can just tip and then all of a sudden new technologies can be discovered so i wanted to just hear what you think about sequestering carbon because i i I feel like that's kind of one of the most important solutions that hasn't talked about at all because we i think to get where we need to be we're gonna have to pull like all the legacy emissions out to get back to a livable climate yeah that's Definitely true. And um, most of the pathways described um, by the IPCC reports about how to get Mm -hmm. to our goals of 1.5 degrees uh, include negative emissions or carbon sequestration because we have put so much uh, dirt into the atmosphere. I like your dirty plate analogy. We sometimes also use the bathtub analogy where it's really full of dirty water right now and you have to drain the dirty water and put Mm -hmm. clean water both at the same time. Um, a lot of the discussion around carbon capture and sequestration focuses on like current and future emissions. So how can, um, companies that are creating emissions use carbon capture and sequestration to stop their emissions now and reduce their sort of total emissions in the future, um, to hit net zero. But we need to also be talking about, as you correctly pointed out, historical emissions and, there's a big question of who, who should be responsible for remo- removing what amount of emissions that are currently in the atmosphere, whether it's the companies that have emitted the most historically, the countries, like who is going to do that? Who will How about pay? the richest nation in the world that is responsible <laughs> for almost everything? Yeah. Um, so we need to figure out who's going to pay because as you correctly pointed out, there's still a really large gap in the technology between what is currently available and what is needed. And we are sort of like desperately working on finding better carbon capture and sequestration technologies because we know that, you know, nature-based solutions are great. It's always good to mm-hmm. plant trees. It's always good to have um, programs that prevent people from chopping down forests, but that is not going to be enough. And in addition, that those nature-based solutions sequester carbon on timescales that are not Correct. long enough. So like forests are burning down, they are emitting carbon that was sequestered. We need to put it in geological storage, which is Mm -hmm. like putting it back in the ground. And we're not great at that yet. Like really there's almost no existing projects that are doing that successfully now at a cost that is reasonable. So we really have to work on that. We have um, an accelerator program called Third Derivative that RMI launched Um, last year. And we're going to have a focus in our next cohort, upcoming cohort on carbon capture and sequestration technologies. And a lot of other people are focusing on this too, right? Like Elon Musk is really into this. Mm -hmm. Lots of billionaires are into this because they've done the math and they know that it's needed. Um, And it is, but also like in the meantime, the most dangerous thing about carbon capture and sequestration is people could use it as an excuse to not stop emitting mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. we have yeah. to do both of course yes. like it's always yes and that's always the solution so it's kind of like if you were overweight you would both like clean up your diet and exercise like you would do both of the things and so mm-hmm. we need to do both of the things yeah 
Well, um, diet is actually is more important, I would say, for losing weight. So, um, so hmm. that's the that's the stopping emissions, and then the negative emissions is the exercise. Oh, okay. Well, I'm <laughs> I'm gonna be calling you because you're you're gonna be no, you're gonna be no, and you're on the front lines of this stuff, and I'm very interested in sequestration because it just kind of makes sense to me. I'm just try- always trying to think ahead. So um, speaking of thinking ahead or, or working today, uh, what, what do you think are some of the most effective actions individuals can take to aid um, in this climate conflict? What do you, I know you've talked about flying less or trying to use electric stuff, but I wanted to see what else you have for, I think my audience is mostly like people my age, like young generation, which I'll ask you what you think mm-hmm. the what advice you have for the youth. But for now, just what, what actions do you think people can take specifically to, to help prevent mm-hmm. future emissions? Yeah, I, uh, I'm glad you asked that question. And I actually have a TEDx Boulder talk on that called Climate Crisis Courage, if anyone wants to watch where I have like Links down below actions you can take. Um, you had some good ideas. Flying less frequently is a great idea. You know, flying is not really that fun anyway. So like, just try not to do it as much in, in, unless you really have to. Um, eating less meat is a huge one. That's like a choice that you make every day. And you don't have to, you know, go full vegan, but if you just eat red meat less you can, if you often, want you could go full vegan. A lot want. of the, a lot of the like fake meat products now are really, really good. Like they're delicious actually. Um, you could get an electric car, an electric bike. Bikes are really fun. But I think probably the biggest thing is um, like advocacy. If you, if you feel like inclined to write an angry letter to your representative, mm. make sure that you're voting, like make sure that you are using your voice to influence people in positions of power, vote with your wallet, you know, whatever, kind of like think about how you can make change in a system, maybe at the company you work, like what could you do to change the company that you work and make them be better? Yeah, that's really cool. Choose climate change realty for your real estate needs, everybody. <laughs> um, Beth, it's been an honor talking to you. You're, you're so full of knowledge and I love your your kind of emphasis in like, the business oriented solution. Cause that's obviously what I really like as well. Uh, final question. I love to ask everyone, any specific advice you have for the youth who are just passionate about a more positive future. It doesn't have to be specific climate oriented uh, tasks, just how to, how to make the world a better place. Any just advice for young people? Um, I think, and this advice goes for everyone working in this space or any difficult space, which is just like, be kind and take care of yourself. <laughs> Cause it's really hard work and mm. like take a vacation. It's okay. You can take breaks, like go for a walk, do some yoga, meditate a little like self-care goes a long way because if we get burned out, that doesn't help to continue the fight. You have to, you have to be like working in a sustainable way. And I struggle with that. <laughs> so me too. yeah. Yeah, it sounds like that was uh, directly pointed at me. Jeez, Beth, what, you know, I'm too, working too much here. No, but, and um, we, we have this like professional development thing that I'm doing now called like dealing with climate grief. We're working mm-hmm. on it like as part of our job. So, yeah, well, it's I find it's really difficult to like take a break and not work when I feel like I am in the fourth quarter and we're down by two touchdowns and I'm trying to like make like the game play here. Now I'm do- not, not going to do it alone. Amazing people like you, we're all working on it, right. but that, that, that's what makes it so hard to, 
to chill, you know, when you really feel like you have like a purpose and when you're not, when you're chilling, but the, the idea is that, um, you'll work more efficiently if you do relax, you know? Right. Right. And, and I, and I am again, as we've already discussed, optimistic that more and more people are going to be working on this problem. So you're not the only one, you know, running around on the sinking ship, telling people to put on their life jacket, like more people right. are going to be putting them on and helping you and it's going to be better. Yeah. Oh, well, well, I really appreciate you. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your thoughts. It's uh, meant the world to me. Thanks, Ethan. It was fun. And I hope to uh, chat again soon. You got it. All right, everybody. Have a fantastic weekend. We'll be back next week. Take it easy. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.